You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where we believe the Bible's a lot more fun when you're not just quoting Paul out of context, right? <laughs> um, that's not aimed at anyone. But I was getting ready to say that wasn't aimed at anyone, was it? <laughs> no, it wasn't. But if, if it offends you, change your ways. So, um, <laughs> no, we are still going through the book of 1 Samuel, um, having fun. Uh, we just got introduced to Goliath last yeah. week, and we're getting ready to jump into the story of David and Goliath. So, yeah, we'll see how we far go. we get. Yeah. How many rabbit trails I I end up chasing on all of this. Yeah, so it's chapter seventeen for those of you playing at home, <laughs> right? Uh, verses. We're gonna get ready to go into verses eight and nine. Uh, but just a little recap: we were talking about how uh, David's own personal journey really does reflect the journey of Israel, and it foreshadows Christ. Mm-hmm. And so we want to keep all those things at play as we're going through the rest of the, the narrative, because this really is about creating sacred space. Okay. And sacred space is a huge deal within the Bible, and it begins as, a, as an earthly location with the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Of course, we lose that. It's you know, God, Pretty quickly, too. Right? You know, maybe in an afternoon, uh, depending on how you read the story. <laughs> I, well, no, I mean, when you listen to some scholars, it's like God made Eve and she gets up and goes to Adam and goes, hey, would you like a snack? Right. Like those are her first words to him is what it sounds like. But then then sacred space is begun, the, the process to uh, begin claiming it again. It was carried through with Abraham. And then, of course, they wind up in Egypt. And then when they return from Egypt, there's the whole con- conquest of Canaan. And they don't want to go in because there's giants. And so here we are back with David facing giants, the, the Rephaim. Uh, this time instead of a nation, we have the, rep- the one who will be the representation of the entire nation as the king. So now that you've got that to um, kind of play with as we go through the rest of the, the story, I, I think it just continues to get even more interesting. So, Well, how could it not? <laughs> It, it will not disappoint. The whole book doesn't disappoint. So verses 8 and 9, and I'm going to read those. He stood, this is referring to Goliath, mm-hmm. and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come, up to draw, come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then you will be, sorry, we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So there is like this major theology lesson within this speech. And, you know, why have you drawn up for battle? Who do you think you are? Mm-hmm. What, what do, right do you have to defy us? Am I not? It's actually the Hebrew is more specific. Am I not the Philistine? Okay. And uh, so am I not superior to you? Uh, th- and this isn't, you know, a baseless boast. I mean, the Philistines were technologically advanced. I mean, we've already got this account of armor, mm-hmm. the use of iron. They are on the cutting edge. They conquered other people already to claim Canaan as their primary homeland. Right. They're one of the Rephaim. 
That means they're literally direct descendants of the gods, of the little E Elohim, the mm-hmm. godlets. Yeah, the Watchers. Yeah, the Watchers. Yeah, uh, he's you know huge. He's a massive guy. He's got that on his side. A reason to um, a, a reason to brag about who he is, and you know he is the Philistine. He's the epitome of what it means to be a Philistine. Is basically what he's saying, and. In rabbinic tradition, he's actually considered to be the Philistine who killed Hophni and Phinehas when the Ark of the Covenant was captured. Okay. Now, is that true? Who knows? Could it be true? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, we, you know, it, it's one of those curious tidbits. Well, and, and if, uh, Hophni, if Hophni? Hophni and Phinehas were, were, uh, carrying the ark and then he killed the people who were bearing their god or in their mind Mm -hmm. then yeah that would make sense if he would yeah it it, it's a fun little exercise and the the rabbis have a lot of fun with goliath himself um another little tidbit that i think is interesting there's a belief that um you know what? I think I go into this later. Let's go into it later. Okay. So there's a teaser for you. So anyway, he asked, are you not servants of Saul? Notice he doesn't say, are you not servants of Yahweh? Are you not servants of the God of Israel? Mm-hmm. He, he points directly to Saul. And it's an accurate description of Israel at this time because Saul isn't representing God. And if Saul had been ab- representing God, then we would be able to say, hey, yeah, they are servants of the true God. Instead, they're being held captive by um, one of their own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, and one of their own who, who's unstable. And, you know, he is the king like other nations. We've already established that in previous episodes. If you want to study that, you know, just start at the beginning of the Saul story. And, you know, Saul is actively taking people for his own purposes. That's been plainly stated that anytime there was a Gavor Khalil, a, a mighty man of valor, he, he brought them into his house and he kept them. Mm-hmm. And that's going to continue to be his practice. So now the nations, um, it is, you know, he, he is cowering and the nation of Israel is cowering before Goliath, just like any other nation would. And they're, they're looking at possible enslavement and Saul's nowhere to be seen by by all standards he should be the one on the front lines right he's the closest thing that Israel has to a giant mm-hmm. so why isn't he out there and that's i mean that's troublesome because as the king as the defender of the nation as the resident giant uh, mm-hmm. he should be the one who's there and the thing is that the the nation really is at the mercy of a madman. And he, this is a king who requires a boy to keep him in line, to keep mm-hmm. him balanced so he can function. Here's a national leader who can't even do anything without a child at his side. And there's no honor or glory to being the servant of Saul. Right. So mm. when you put all of that into play, you realize that Goliath might actually have a clue as to what he's talking about. And that's the thing about evil when it's presented in the Bible. This is not some kind of dumb, uh, stupid entity trying to come against God's people. It's always intelligent. It's always smart. Mm -hmm. And Goliath really embodies 
how smart and how aggressive and how fearless evil is, even in the face of evidence that it has no right to be. Right. So verse 10 and 11, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel had heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly af- uh, afraid. So only twice in this entire story is Goliath referred to as by name. Okay. He is always the Philistine. Oh, I mean, the other rest of the time, yeah. always, because obviously there's two exceptions. And... um. I defy, Bergen says a better translation of that is I heap shame upon uh, the armies of Israel. So it's more of a, it's more of a taunt than what we realize. It it really is kind of this degrading language and not just come out and meet me. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would would be saying it's shameful. The the way you're all hiding away is is a shameful Mm -hmm. act kind of thing. Yeah. Now, Zamora, actually, he uh, translates it with uh, reproach. I reproach you, which actually falls in the line with what evil does in the Bible and other stories, because it's an accuser and says, you know, hey, here's your problem. This is what's wrong with you. This is who you are. I'm going to define you instead of allowing God to define you. And so that's also in keeping Uh, the fact that I've got two kind of heavyweights weighing in on the same word with little difference. They're similar. Sure. And I don't think there's a major conflict there. And probably if you are a native speaker of Hebrew, they would, it would fall somewhere on a spectrum between, with, those, between yeah. those. So the limits of translation, you know. But Goliath, uh, he sees what the problem has been. And the problem is that they have enslaved themselves to this weak king that they demanded. Right. And they're weak because they have... Um, They've forgotten they belong to God. Yeah. They think they belong to Saul. But I love this, this one line, and the reason why I love it, give me a man. Okay. What, now, which word for man are we there? You know, I didn't even look. I, I, I'm bad about that. No. Because, <laughs> no, I, w- I don't even have my phone to go look it up because uh, it would be interesting to know. I'm, I'm thinking it's probably going to be Ish. Okay. But if it was Adama, that would be even better. I was uh, thinking Gibor, uh, a Gibor. Um, would be interesting. Possibly. But he, um, we'll go with what I got. We'll have to look that up. Okay. Um, but the, the, the implication is that there is no man in Israel. Uh, they had abandoned the one who had created them in their image. So they are no longer in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And also, when Christ arrives, how does he arrive to confront the enemy? He arrives as a man. And he gives the enemy exactly what they ask, you know, what Goliath and even other embodied evil ask for, it, a man, not a god, because they know they can't take on a god, but they know that they can defeat humanity if humanity is not connected to God. And that's still true today. So, so you're, that's verse eight. Um, Was that right? I believe so. In ESV, it says, choose a man, or is it? Actually, it's verse uh, 10. Verse 10, okay. And so, yeah, in the ESV, it would oh, be a man. Yeah give, me a, yeah, give me a man that we may... Okay, mm-hmm. I'm trying to find it to see if I can... Uh, Bible have inner literature. Well, so, <laughs> but... I'm on my way. <laughs> yeah. Make sure I got the right verse. And yeah, so that's, that's a really... Um, I, I think it could be interesting to see exactly how... What they say there, and I, I hate it when I don't pick up on stuff that you do. 
Um, but anyway, sorry. <laughs> um, but you know the the, the charges Goliath are br- is bringing they're, they're very accurate, and, and that's the thing with a of, with a good enemy they know how to strike at your weak points. And it's interesting that he calls for a man, a man knowing that he's a Rephaim. He knows that the scales are tipped in his balance. So even though he's putting on this big display, it's it's each. It is yeah. each. Okay. So he he knows that he can overcome a man. He knows he can't overcome God. And then all this talk about servants. Now the ESV translates it servants. It, it another um, possible translation is slaves. But now you've got that connection right back to Egypt, and yeah. we know that the Philistines within the Book of Samuel. They're always going to represent the Egyptians. And we do know that the, the Philistines, they love enslavement. This is always what they're after. We have that with Samson in the Temple of Dagon. Mm-hmm. We have that with Abraham, with um, Abimelech. We have it with Isaac, with Abimelech, who we often forget was the king of the Philistines. And okay. so, you know, what did the Philistines do? Every time you go to the Philistines, the king takes your wife. I mean, this is what happens all the time. And then the Philistines equaling the Egyptians in this uh, scenario in Samuel, with Samuel equaling Moses, we see once again that the object of the enemy, and I think this is really significant, the object of the enemy is not to kill if he can enslave. The enemy will enslave always if that's a choice, if there's an option to enslave God's people that's going to be the first thing they do. And mm-hmm. we see that that's true today. How many people do we know who are enslaved to drugs, enslaved to you know, whatever habit or uh, mindset or anything that has taken away life and degrades them as a human being? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's still very much a part of our world. And when we forget that all of these problems have a spiritual component, then we don't have the right weapons with which to fight our wars. Mm-hmm. So and that, and that's not to discount like we were talking about last week. It's not to discount the psychological mm-hmm. and actual, uh, you know, physical things and whatnot. That's to to be used in conjunction, right? So. Yeah, and that's the thing we've got to we've got to balance it out. Those tensioners that we're always talking about, and the the you've got to have that tension. But when you look at this speech of Goliath, and then you look at Jesus and who he was, we have a man. Mm-hmm who overcomes evil, mm-hmm. frees us from the powers of sin and evil, so we're not enslaved to it anymore, and he reveals the inability of humanity to face the supernatural enemy on their own. Right. So right. I, I love that because we, we act like, oh, well, if you're just brave enough to walk onto the battlefield, you're going to be fine. That's the modern-day version of the David. You just have to step out there and you know, be who you are, use your skills, and David's story is not about that. It was never about just who David was. It's about who David is when he's working with God mm-hmm. in God's purposes and plans. Mm-hmm. And we can't overlook that because this is a supernatural enemy. And Goliath isn't just some guy, like I said last week, with a pituitary problem. He really <laughs> is a spiritual, the result of a spiritual union mm-hmm. with humanity. And that's really where ugly things happen when the wrong kind of spirituality connects with humanity. And we still give birth to ugly things in our lives when that occurs. Uh, maybe not Nephilim, but sure. the, the principle's still there. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So, 
Okay, got to trace a, chase a major rabbit trail on this one, so hang on. Okay, go for it. <laughs> We're on verse 12. Now David was the one of the Ephrathite, I love that word, mm-hmm. of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. Okay, so this is a weird verse. Why do we need to know that Jesse's old? That was the first thing I thought of when I read it. Is this a callback to Abraham? Close. Close. Okay. You're in the right book. So Yeah, but a lot happened in that book. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's well, you know, there's like 49 chapters. So anyway, um, why do we need to know Jesse's old? Okay, so number one, it could possibly be so we understand he's not on the battlefield because he's too old. He's no longer obligated to take part in military action. Gotcha. So rational reasonable um uh for that to read that way mm-hmm. uh but rabbi david silva uh, i've referenced him before and he proposes a second reason and he's with drisha and drisha has their uh, a lot of their uh, lectures online if you don't speak or read hebrew they might be a little difficult because they do a lot of things in hebrew uh, but I, there's enough english in there i think most people can follow it but he says that we need to know that David is the son of Jesse's old age. And he sees this as a link back to Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to give you the summary of what he presented and because this was just so good. So Benjamin, you know, he's the youngest of Jacob's son. He was born immediately after God promises Jacob that he will be the father of kings and he will possess the land promised to Abraham. That's in Genesis 39. So the seeming implication, because God says you will give birth to kings, Mm -hmm. is that the son who's born next will be the king, not that the sons he had prior to this will be the king. That's kind of a lot of the ways that when we look at biblical prophecy, how it works. And then the writer of Benjamin, uh, so sorry, the writer of Samuel seems to, to even strengthen this connection. Not only do we have Jesse's old age, we have Ephrathite from Bethlehem, of Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Well, Genesis 35, 19, so died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And so we know that Benjamin in the story becomes the stand-in for Joseph. Okay, so, yeah. uh, by the way, that verse was talking of Rachel. That's uh, Benjamin's mother. She, mm-hmm. she died immediately on birth. Remember, that connects back to when the Ark of the Covenant was taken. The news arrived to town, and um, one of Eli's son's wives was giving birth, and that story connected directly back to Rachel. Gotcha. And so we, we've still got this tie going back to the Benjamin story. And Benjamin's the stand-in for Joseph, because when Joseph is gone, then uh, Jacob relies on Benjamin. He doesn't want to let Benjamin go. Mm-hmm. He's scared to, to let the brothers take him to Egypt. And he sees this as a foreshadowing of how David is going to be the replacement for Saul. Saul fails, and, and, and he sends himself into exile. Uh, it, wasn't, it, wasn't that, um, it, it wasn't that... Saul was sent into exile by his brothers, but Saul did it to himself. Okay. And in doing that, he threatens to send all of Israel into exile with him. It's just like all of Israel winds up following Joseph. 
to Egypt. Gotcha. Okay. So another interesting link is this theme of replacement is picked up in Esther. Okay. Because if you read in Esther, let me find the verse, 119, it says, and let her be a let her royal position be given to one who is better than she. Well, we know that Saul's throne is going to be given to a neighbor who is better than him. That's the words that Samuel spoke to him in 1 Samuel 15, 28. And so this is all keeping within the framework. And by the way, Esther was of the Benjamin tribe. It's all keeping with the framework set up within Genesis. So we have this connection, and it's a reminder that even though David is out of the tribe of Judah, he has ties with that tradition of Benjamin and with that promise that God had given to Jacob that Jacob would have sons who were kings. Now, it winds up being Judah, okay. but at the same time, Benjamin, the promise right before Benjamin's birth is not forgotten. It's actually fulfilled, but it's fulfilled in a way that Jacob could not have foreseen. Sure. And well, he kind of foresees it a little bit. We see it in the um, in the blessing he gives to the sons, but there's also a debate on how much of that was Judah was actually going to be king, and how much of it is Benjamin was still going to retain a royal line. Right. So, and the the whole book of Samuel is about this replacement idea because we even open with Samuel replacing Eli, and it's where the flaws of the mentor pave the way for the protege, mm-hmm. and so. Of course, we see this, this theme continued in the New Testament because Jesus becomes the second Adam. Right. So this idea of being replaced and having someone step up to do the job that you were unwilling to do becomes very integral within the, the book of Samuel itself. Hmm. So, yeah, it's... That's a lot of, that, that's a lot of layers. <laughs> this is, I think this is the point in the Bible uh, right here with Samuel that we really do start to see how the layers are stacked on top of each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you don't see it in Genesis because you haven't built enough, and you don't see it in uh, the New Testament because most people don't teach the Old Testament. So, right. you know, so when you're here, you can kind of look both ways. And it's, it's you know, kind of that pinnacle that allows you to, to see in all directions. Sure. So moving on in verse 13 and 15, um, this is the encounter with uh, Jesse's sons. His three oldest sons are on the front lines. We have the names Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, and they followed Saul. So they are people who support Saul. And that's an interesting note because they know their brother's the next king. Yeah. You would think that they would have got, hey, it's our brother. He's the next king. Let's go oust Saul. Let's get David in place, mm-hmm. and then our family's just going to prosper. Well, I think I think that just kind of uh, speaks to kind of their faithfulness to what's going on, as to not just decide for their own selfish gain to overturn the system. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, there, there's that. Uh, I I I kind of think it's a combination of, you know, he's our little brother. Yeah, Samuel came along. He did this funky little ritual. Maybe he's right, maybe he's not, but, you know, it's our little brother. Do we really expect him to be the one? Right. And then at the same time, there is that element, Saul is God's anointed, mm-hmm. so you don't, you don't mess with him. Right. So the, the three sons here are probably 
all that Jesse is required to send into battle of his sons. You know, there'd be an obligation to provide so many men for uh, the wars. Uh, He probably didn't have to send the rest of them. Or maybe they're the only ones old enough to serve because um, you have to be 20, 20 years old in order to serve in the army, according to the book of Numbers. Okay. Um, and, you know, we're given this glimpse of the fact that David is Saul's right-hand man in the palace, but he's still the errand boy when he's at home. Mm-hmm. And so he's living this really divided life where right. he, where does he fit? Yeah. Well, and, and uh, you know, cause it earlier says he became the armor bearer, but now he's back watching the sheep again. Mm-hmm. You know, where is it? Like what's the, well, and he was probably at this point, um, traveling back and forth between the two places. He, he would probably go home for a few days, go back to Saul, go back. And cause Saul had more than one armor bearer. Oh, uh, well, sure. And the fact that he hadn't totally been relinquished, and we're going to get in, we're actually going to find out in a later verse that he is re- allowed to go back home because this verse in, I believe it's chapter 18, says that from that day, he was not allowed to go return to his father's house. So okay. there seems to be the implication that before that, yeah, there was a lot of back and forth. And, you know, for a young man like David, walking 10 miles was nothing. Uh, he could do that twice a day. Right. Not a big deal. So, well, when that's the mode of transportation everyone's used to anyway. Oh, yeah. If you're used to it, it, it isn't a big deal. It, it's whenever we start sitting at desk too long, like I've been doing. Riding in cars. <laughs> yeah. Things like that. So, and, you know, he may have had a donkey to ride. Who knows? Uh, all these details that the Bible doesn't give us because they don't think we need them. Um, well, yeah. I, I mean, obviously we didn't, but, you know, inquiry minds. So... But verse 16, we're told that Saul, uh, that Goliath stands for 40 days to make his taunt. And um, he does this every morning, every night. And of course, we're, we're that 40, mm-hmm. we're thinking of Egypt. We're thinking of coming out of there, the wilderness journeys, and that time of testing and trial. We're thinking of Christ, temptation in the wilderness. Yeah, that's, that, I usually think of that or the flood, mm-hmm. um, generally. Exactly. It's that confrontational moment with, with evil. Mm-hmm. That that sifting out and that sorting through what are you made of is pretty much what uh, 40 represents. So Jesse sends David to the battlefield, you know, with a care package for the troops. You know, and, and I thought this was really interesting. He sends a gift for the commander. So he sends the brothers um, parched grain and he sends the commander 10 different kinds of cheeses or 10 cheeses. Um, of the two, one is, you know, nachos that you feed the kids, and one is kind of a gourmet offering uh, to a special guest. And I think we see not only the mechanism for how David gets to the front lines, I mean, he's sent by his father, obviously, mm-hmm. but he is, we're, we're seeing a little glimpse of Jesse here, mm-hmm. because if your boys are on the front line fighting a battle and you give them, you know, a bag of chips or something and you're sending the good stuff to their commander, what are you doing? I, I, think, he, I think he's playing politics. Well, that's, that's not unlikely. The, the part that I found interesting was um, where he says, oh, where is it? Um, 
see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, are are they sending their wages back? Uh, is that what's going on? That's or one. Is it just some kind of like you know, see if they got any cool war spoils or something. You know, just like what's what's he doing there? It's it. That's the thing. We we really don't know. Uh, that's kind of obscure. And I think what we're we're seeing is the idea that there's some kind of proof of life, which sure. um, you know, whatever that might be. There is no real clear indication from either within the Bible itself or from other cultures what this could be. Right. And so, um, you know, it, it could be just as simple as just let me know they're still there. Yeah. And, and I, I, need, I need to know that. What that looked like officially, anybody's guess. I, 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 as a matter of fact, it's so obscure. Most of the things I read were basically, we don't know. I mean, that was well, yeah. Fair um, enough. most people didn't even bother to make a guess. But I, I do think that we are seeing that Jesse is possibly trying to even, you know, butter up their commander for the brothers and saying, hey, you, my sons maybe don't need to be on the front lines or make sure they get all the rations for their food or make mm-hmm. sure, you know, he I think he is trying to be smart. And when you remember that Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and think about how she manipulated the whole situation with Boaz to get what she wanted. Jesse comes from a line of schemers. Sure. And so the fact that David grew up in a household with a man who says, Hey, I know how to grease the wheels. I know how to show, you know, when showing honor is correct and gets things done. It it kind of sheds a little bit of, um, of light on, why David is the way he is. Okay, I can see so, that. Um, so in verses 19 through 24, we, we have a description of the scene, and, and this time it's with David in it. And there's a lot of fun little details. Uh, he leaves the sheep with the keeper. The, the writer's very careful to make note of that. Uh, he's, he's a good shepherd, even in the middle of this national conflict and crisis, he doesn't lose sight of what his primary duties are. As Jesse commands him, so he's obedient to the father, he goes to the battlefield. So we get to see that, that he is a son who can be sent into battle and he will put himself in dangerous situations and in inconvenient situations for the sake of obedience. Mm-hmm. So this is a good thing. Uh, uh, one, one thing I, uh, I wanted okay. to look at here just real quick because uh, we, we skipped it oh is, did we? Yeah, well in in verse 19 where he talks where it says um now israel uh, uh, whoops now saul and they it's awkwardly worded now saul and they and all the men of israel were in the valley of elah fighting with the philistines so i i'm curious about this so is goliath just sitting out while the rest of the philistines fight is that what's going on? Does he come up every morning and offer this challenge and then just go take a rest? You know, we really don't have any indication other than that verse there. You know, there might have been some minor skirmishes, you know, holding the line that uh-huh. uh, from each side going, you aren't going to progress past this point. Yeah. But it does seem like Goliath really, he, you know, he steps out, makes this threat, goes and sits down in the shade somewhere and then comes back in the evening but there's not the major clash. The, the huge battle isn't happening yet. Most of the time, well, as a matter of fact, when we get to uh, another scripture, we find out that when Goliath comes out, everybody runs away. 
Right. So there, there is some interaction, but I think it's from what I'm reading, and, and I may be wrong, but from what I'm reading, I think it's more just holding the line. Okay. And, you know, because if you're sitting there for 40 days looking at an opposing army, almost every commander is going to, you know, send out a few people to go check for weaknesses in the line. And mm-hmm. there's going to be a little back and forth, you know, some rocks flung just to remind people, hey, I'm still here. Yeah. I still defy you. I'm, I'm still going to um, continue to hold my place. So there's just not a lot of detail given. And that's one of the things the Bible really doesn't care about the mechanics of the battle a lot of times. And how many battles do we have? Oh, and they fought and this many died and moving on. You know? It's, sure, sure. So it's one of those details that we kind of like, come on, guys, a little bit more information would be great. So, uh, but yeah, we, we are describing that scene with what's happening in the valley. And yes, Saul was there, but evidently he's not going out to, to uh, meet the giant, which is a huge contrast from get, mm-hmm. what's getting ready to come up. Uh, David even leaves the baggage with the keeper. So he's even being responsible with other people's things. So when he gets there, after he leaves the baggage, he runs to the front line, which you know, nobody else is doing this. He's eager to be in the midst of that battle. And as he's greeting his brothers, he hears about the Philistines' taunts. Now, we can read a whole lot into that when we're looking at the life of Christ, that Jesus is the good shepherd. He's willing to obey his father. Mm-hmm. That during his time away from us, he has, he has left us in the keeping of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So, there, like I said, there's a lot of things we can play with, and I'm not going to go into to it right now because I think it's going to become even more obvious later, and I think, you know, most Christians are already familiar with a lot of those concepts, even if they haven't seen them with uh, David. So, verse 24, we're told for a second time that all of Israel is afraid. The, the writer wants you to understand. They're terrified, mm-hmm. and they, they do run with, when Goliath comes out. And, you know, think about, you know, 40 days have, having to watch him lumber out there every morning, you know, this big dude, you kind of wonder how, how graceful he was, how, mm-hmm. you know, they've been seeing him in all of his shining armor, which you know it was polished to perfection. Sure. Bronze can be polished to the point it can be used as a mirror. Right. So, uh, you know, he looks radiant in the light of the morning, you know, when the sun's coming up. And, you know, he, he tosses the insults back out, and then he goes back to camp. And for 40 days, this psychological warfare has been inflicted on the nation of Israel. And psychological warfare has real ramifications. Mm-hmm. We, we've seen that in uh, modern times. And, man, you, you don't want to have to be exposed to something that's constantly just eroding at your confidence, both within yourself and within the army you're with and the nation you serve. And, uh, you know, now whenever there is warfare and there's this kind of propaganda being tossed out, that's one of the first strikes. And one of the first things armies will go against to shut down those kinds of voices Mm -hmm. because they don't want the troops demoralized. So imagine being in this situation where the brothers are. And, you know, the other thing too. I want to make sure I get this. Um, ah, there we go. Make sure I get my notes in order. David's not the only one with the sling during all of this. Sure. I mean, this would have been a weapon almost anyone who had sheep. And who had sheep? 
almost Mammals everyone. everyone. Yeah. They would have had it. And the the front lines it would have been made up of Saul's own tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. Well, in Judges 20, 16, 600 men from the tribe of Benjamin were left-handed th- sling throwers who didn't miss. Mm-hmm. So Saul's own tribe, the most ideally prepared, Saul himself, the most ideally suited, they're all standing there for 40 days trembling in front of Goliath. Mm-hmm. And there's a good possibility that, that Saul even knew how to use a sling, right. but he had forgotten who he was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And anytime you forget who you are, there's a problem. And this is the reason why we as Christians have to constant be, constantly be reminding ourselves who we are and that we aren't, you know, what everybody is around us, that we are set apart, we're different, and why we have to surround ourselves with people who are also set apart because if you aren't constantly being reminded of who God says you are, your confidence begins to erode and you wind up running away every time a giant shows up in your world. Sure. So, uh, you know, and that's another point. If you want to identify yourself with someone in the story, identify yourself with the troops of, of Israel who are, sh- uh, you know, shaking in their boots in the trenches. You're not David, guys. Most of us aren't. Uh, that's not who David is supposed to represent. Right. So... We need the champion to fight on our behalf. So anyway, I won't meddle too much. Verse 25, the men of Israel, uh, this is not a quote, but the men of Israel asked David if he has seen the man who is shouting the, ch- uh, the challenge. And they, um, they tell David that he's come out to reproach, that Goliath has come out to reproach Israel. Mm-hmm. And then they list off all these things that Saul's going to give anyone who slays this giant and it's riches. He's going to give them one of his daughters as a wife and the father's house will be free. I think that's really interesting. And the father's house, that that phrasing there, the father's house would be free, which I assume means that all the household is no longer, would be like tax exempt and didn't have to fight in the armies and things like that. Wouldn't be taken by Saul to live in, you know, his, his Royal courts. Um, that, yeah, remember what Goliath said. They're slaves and servants of Saul. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, but you were absolutely right that about the taxation. That probably would have been included. Um, and they're also very free of the military draft. All the things, yeah, you, you got it. And, of course, you know, this does echo with Christ's own promise for us. Um, you know, the Father's people will be free. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Savior will receive a bride, who's the church. and we're going to be rich. We're going to, and when I say rich, I'm not talking monetarily. I'm talking about, you know, and all the things that really matter. Sure. And, you know, don't, don't get confused. Money can be a blessing from God. It's not a guaranteed blessing from God. And we're right. not promoting that. So <laughs> I want to make it very, very clear. So verse 26, and David said to the man who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Well, he'd just been told. And he says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So David has his moment uh, where he's like, wait, hold on. Let, you know, let, let's, let's get this straight. Whoever kills the giant gets what? Tell me again. <laughs> I want to make sure. And you can almost hear David's wheels turning in his head, just click, 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 click. He knows who he is. Mm-hmm. 
And he sees an opportunity where, hey, maybe I can get a little closer to where God has promised he's going to send yeah. me. Yeah, well, and, and I, I do think probably in David's head, there, there's probably a bit of this going, this is how God's going to deliver <laughs> me from uh, being subject to Saul. Yeah. Uh, as at that point, I think he's taking, it would, it would seem to me like he's taking the word free to be like, so how, how free are we talking here? Right? How free is free? <laughs> is it totally like he's no longer my king free? Is that, is that where we're at? Well, and David is an interesting guy because every situation he approaches, the things that are said about you often about you, sorry. About David, that was not Freudian at all. Um, but anyway, the things that are said about David are really interesting because you really aren't certain how you should read them a lot of time. It, it, is this manipulation? Is this you know plotting and scheming? Is are surely not one of the holy sacred people of faith that God used in the Old Testament. Well, it, I mean, it, they would never do anything uh, like that, right? Uh, See Ruth. Uh, yeah. So, well, and and, the, and David's you know direct uh, ancestor. But the the thing is, there's also that room for is this an act of pure faith? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the, you you don't know. But contrast that with Saul, and especially as we get further into Saul's story, we're always told exactly what Saul is thinking. Mm-hmm. We don't have to guess. He he's going to lay it out on the line. Where with David, like I said, the the writer. It's like the writer is himself doesn't know what to make of David. Right. And so you, you have this kind of veil of mystery about why, he's, um, you know, why he does what he does and what his thought process is and what he's feeling. And the, really, the only time you get a clear window into David's soul really are the Psalms. So um, that's, we're going to talk about how those play in later. But you know, this is a tailor-made opportunity for a newly appointed king a newly secretly appointed king. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, there, there's money. There's a legitimate connection to the royal family. Mm-hmm. It would not have been uncommon for a son-in-law to succeed the, the father-in-law within this time period, especially if the sons weren't considered worthy. Sure. So uh, he would have the, the right family at this point. He wouldn't be just from the family of Jesse, who's nobody. And we're going to talk about the significance of that. Uh, his own family, of course, they're going to benefit from it. And that includes all of his brothers, his fathers. And his, this is huge because not only is it relieve really a financial obligation off of the family, this also means this opens up marriage possibilities into better echelons within the society mm-hmm, itself, mm-hmm. which means more land, which means even more riches that can be accumulated. I mean, it's a great opportunity. And, you know, just the fact that the prestige that would come with you know, having killed the the giant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing is, I think David might be young right here, but he's not naive. Right. I have a hard time seeing David as ever being naive. And so that might just be me. But I, I think he's the kind of person who, who saw through everything and he saw multiple layers in every situation he, he approached. Right. Now, I... I do have questions about the order of the story here. Okay. Is it possible that this event happened before David was anointed? 
Um, and before he was taken to the palace to play the harp or the lyre, I'm sorry, but because <laughs> right. I, I wonder about this because when the people talk about David, they say he's a man of war. And before that, if, if that all happened before this, how do we know he's a man of war? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really curious if there's maybe this part of the story is like, is just it's like the prequel to the stuff we we have already read. That's actually a, a very real possibility, and there are scholars who have said that the two chapters, seventeen and sixteen, were reversed. Okay, and so if and there is a certain level of sense to that argument. Uh, we're actually, I think I actually go into. Um, I wrote my my notes like two days ago, but I still have a hard time remembering what they were because there was just so much. And I think I actually look at some of the reasons why um why that may work and why it may not work and because there are good arguments for and against both readings and i think the main thing is it isn't so much the chronology but the fact that they did happen and so we can't let that shake us too much but there are there is a certain amount of sense in knowing that david had established a reputation and of course this would do it this would be exactly why you know saul's um advisors would know him. And because at the end of the chapter, when uh, Saul is being told about uh, David's, um, David's victory over Goliath, Abner, Saul's general, has no idea who David is. Well, if David's been at the courts playing the liar for, for Saul all this time, you can't tell me that Abner hadn't you know, run into them, but we're going to talk about, that's where we're going to talk about the chronology when we get to that part. Okay, so but uh, yeah, I was curious about that. I mean, of course, I mean, I could see like, mm-hmm. I mean, I could see people not knowing the name of the musician. I mean, especially if he's like, you know, like a, I don't know what style if he's, if he's a jazz musician <laughs> just playing stuff in the, you know, <laughs> no one knows the name of the the guy who's playing at the the cocktail party. Not unless they're Miles, da- Miles Davis. But well, that's a whole that's, other story. <laughs> not, he's not playing cocktail parties. Well, not anymore. Not anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if he is, um, you're in the wrong. By the time place. everyone knew his, yeah, By the time everyone knew his name, I'm sure he was not playing just random cocktail parties anymore. So, um, so yeah. But, sorry. Uh, Rabbit trails. But no, I, I was just curious about. No, that. but it's a good question because I don't think people realize there are these little tip offs in the scripture that we can pick up on if we're reading closely. Right. And, 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 and the other thing that, because it says he became his armor bearer mm-hmm. in, in the palace. Now, the thing is, it, here in, in the ESV, it says he I can't use these because I haven't tested them. Right. Well, if he's the armor bearer, he's going to be familiar with Saul's armor. Right. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. So that's, to me, I'm, that's, that to me was one of the major tip-offs that maybe they were backwards. Yeah, uh, and like I said, possibility. I, I'm I'm still kind of on the fence, but it, you know, here's the thing: Saul's losing his mind at this point. Sure, you know, <laughs> Saul is completely unstable because he's constantly being tormented by that that evil spirit. So, whoever um, is encountering Saul, even on a day to day basis, might not be someone that Saul's keeping track of too closely. And so, yeah. for me, that's the reason why Abner's statement made it more, uh, you know, more concrete and a possibility. Sure. Because I, what we find out about Abner, he, he seems to be a little bit more reliable um, 
mentally? Yeah, and, and just credible in his recollection, uh, recollection of events and that sort of thing. Fair so, enough. Well, let's, let's move on. Sorry, okay. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to get us way off track. But. That's what we do here. Uh, this is the problem with our conversations and why they last seven hours. But um, yeah. So, but I, I think what's interesting in David's statement here is he actually flips Goliath's challenge. He reverses it. And, you know, who are you to draw up against me? Philistine is what Goliath says. And David's, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? You know, you, you dirty, low-down dog. Yeah. You, who do you think you are? Yeah. Well, I, and, I don't know your name. Yeah. And yeah. who is a Philistine to defy Israel? You know, he, he thinks that he can defy, defy Israel. And David's like, no, this is not what's going to go on. This is the total reverse, exact opposite of what should happen. Don't you guys see it? And David's the only one with the right, um, with the right perspective. And he reminds that they're not Saul's army. He reminds them mm-hmm. that they don't belong to Saul. They're the army of the living God. The right. living God always denotes God's active participation within the world of the living. Yeah. Well, did, yeah. Didn't you say there's also it could be translated the God of the living as opposed to the mm-hmm. living God? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. because that's the thing that 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 title the the living God. I know that that's been used uh, by a lot of people to try to uh, discredit the the divine council worldview. Right. The idea that well the Bible calls him the living God, and then of course you know you're like well you're putting a whole lot of emphasis on, on uh, word on structure, a lot of word structure, but yeah, just going through that and, and saying, you know, the living God versus all the other gods who are fake. That's not what's being right. necessarily conveyed here. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah. God, this is a God who, who's active and participating in the lives of the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. And that's what David wants the, the army to remember, because if we don't have that little piece in play, then why should they be afraid? Why should they stand up against Goliath? There's mm-hmm. no reason. I mean, pack up your bags and go home. You're living in a tent anyway. Just move a little further out in the desert. No one's going to care. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not, um, you know, what do they really have to, to fight for? The only thing they have to fight for is the fact that God said this land is theirs. And the fact that they're still occupying the land demonstrates a level of faith and a level of trust within God, even though they seem to have forgotten who God is and why God wants them to occupy this place. But there, there's something really subtle going on with, with David's words here. And I would have picked, not picked this up. It was not for Samara. Uh, he notes that when David says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God, according to the ESV. If you go over to Psalms 8, 4. Okay. For who is this man that thou art mindful of him? Of Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this, this is based on a very specific word order and structure of a Hebrew word, um, the word for. Um, it, it's not used this way very often. And of course, Psalms 8 is it's a messianic psalm and is used to uh, talk about uh, the Messiah. It, it is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, 27, Philippians 3, 21. Ephesians 1, 22, Matthew 21, 14 through 16, and Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, and Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, quote it verbatim. So, which, which is interesting that it's got that many citations because it's a very short psalm. It's nine verses long. Precisely. Precisely. And, you know, the New Testament writers make it strikingly clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of this particular psalm. 
And so uh, I'm just going to read Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, because uh, I think it, it makes the point without me having to say a whole lot more. Uh, it says, for it was, not, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, has been, tran- uh, has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you should care for him? You have made him flesh, you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So th- this, this psalm specifically is about Christ. Mm-hmm. We, we can't get around that, and that's the main point. And it demonstrates, because David wrote it, David sees the world from God's perspective. Mm-hmm. He understands how things work, and this is a prophetic understanding. And I think sometimes we forget that David is a prophet, even though he's king. He's also a prophet. You don't write the Psalms that he wrote if you don't have that prophetic understanding of the world. Now, again, when I say prophet, I'm not talking about someone who foretells the future. I'm talking about someone who can see and articulate, see reality as it is and articulate it to, to the listening, listening audience. Uh, the Psalms do this. Mm-hmm. The Psalms do this. Um, and I should also, that reminds me, uh, I was invited to do a um, guest post for CRC uh, Ministries and talking about the role of the prophet in the church today. Uh, Doug Overmeyer, who is the head of that, uh, founder of that, invited me to do that. So uh, we talk about that. If you want to know more, be sure and, and go over to Doug's site. He's got some really great stuff on there mm-hmm. to talk about uh, your prophecy and seeing and all of these different things in the modern world. So a shout out to Doug because he's been great. Yeah, uh, yeah he's been a, a big supporter. And we're going to get him on the show at some point. Uh, and he also has a podcast, so Yeah, consider yourself warned, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, he knows. He's ready. Uh, so, um, but yeah, David, he really, um, he understands humanity's position. We actually had him on the commentarians. We did. By the way. We did. I know, because I was the one who hosted that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> good episode i just i was letting everyone else everyone else know while we're talking about yeah and luke had him on his show oh yeah so yeah it changed my mind so we've got you know doug's been around right and we want to have him back but i want to read this this quote by rolf a jacobson Uh, i think this really sums it up nicely uh, about david's ability to see humanity's position within these conflicts and he sees conflicts again they're not just wars between two human armies or two human men. They are conflicts between God and these other spiritual entities, mm-hmm. the godlets, the little e Elohim. So Jacobson says, I know I want to, I just have to make that clear because this is not pantheism. It's not polytheism. It's not henotheism. Our God is distinct. He is different. And that's the reason why it's still monotheism. Sure. So, okay. So Jacobson, he says, this is the central paradox and the heart of the human identity. We are a creation of small account, bearing the dust of the earth in our bodies and the nature of animals in our ways and being. Yet we are of heaven, carrying our maker's mark on our souls and sharing in the likeness and image of God. Caught up in the glories of this paradox, the psalmist can find no other words equal to the situation than these. 
O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name in all the earth. So when David is saying this to Goliath, he's reminding Israel, this is who you are. You were created in the image of the one true God. You need to stand up and act like men. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is why he's, he's so adamant that we not just stop and, you know, cower in, in the ditches. And yeah. I'm sorry, I'm laughing because I hear the girls, one of the girls has a harmonica. Oh, there. is that what it yeah, is? I, was trying to I thought it was a it car is. horn. Uh, but. Oh, sorry. sorry if that's coming through the, <laughs> through the mics. Now, and I should also, since we mentioned mentioning friends of the podcast, Carmen Imes, uh, bearing God's name and talking about the image of God and our humanity's yeah. position, uh, y'all guys need to check her stuff out too. She's doing some some great stuff with with her work mm-hmm. and uh, just just solid. Wow, and because I think this is fundamentally, this is an issue. I think every human being has to to struggle with. I mean, we're either arrogant jerks. Or were Eeyores mm-hmm. and, you know, not much of a house for not much of a donkey. And we're feeling sorry for ourselves. And we have to find that middle ground mm-hmm. where we can say that, you know, we're worthy of love and we're worthy of you know, being treated well and respect and the things that come along, you know, basic things that should come along with being human because we are created in God's image and disrespecting God's image in anyone should be unthinkable. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we need to recognize we're not God. And I think that's where most of us mess up. And we think that we have some kind of right to be treated above and beyond what any human being has a right mm-hmm, to. Mm-hmm. So finding that balance uh, has always been the problem. And I think we see that balance in David's Psalms, that not only in Psalms 8, but in so many of them where he goes through wrestling with, hey, this is how horrible of a person I am. Mm-hmm. This is how awful my situation is. But I do serve the living God. I serve the holy God of Israel, and this is why it's all good. And this is why I can be at peace, and I can, can worship. And so for, for David to pose this question to Goliath, who is this? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It really alerts us to the fact that David, he's something special. Because most young people, at the, you know, we're talking probably 18, 19, he's below the age where he has to serve in the army. Mm-hmm. They don't have that kind of perspective. They, right. There's a few. I mean, I'm not saying that you can't be this young and have that perspective, but those are standouts. Right. <laughs> well, and I, I, no, what I think is interesting, yeah, along with this speech, uh, is that the people answered him, was it? The people answered in the same way. So basically, Saul's showing up. Saul's been there the whole time, and mm-hmm. the the whole project stalled out. Right? You know, the yeah. whole the whole battle is 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 just at a st- at a standstill. Mm-hmm. And David comes in, and with without even like, I guess with, with just doing what he does naturally. He, so we have like this natural leadership quality mm-hmm. that. He knows how to talk to the people. To, He's working the crowds. To, yeah, to get them, to, to encourage them. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's, I, I, I think that's what's really interesting. And I, I think too often in the church, we, we overlook the people who have those natural 
leadership yes. abilities. Yes. And um, I might be speaking out of my own experience, but I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it many times. Where, I've talked to so many people. It's the same thing. Where the the guys who actually have leadership experience and 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 gifting just that natural ability mm-hmm. get passed over. And unfortunately, I do. I know I've talked to enough people. <laughs> and I'm trying to be very delicate here um, because uh, of, you know, I don't want anyone's. Uh, you want to tell I, your I story. Don't, I don't, don't want to tell else's. everyone else's story, but I've, I've, I've spoken to enough pastors and people behind the scenes to know that a lot of the reason that these people get passed over is because the lead pastor is threatened by them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's um, that's unfortunate. It is. I mean. Basically, you have these pastors, they're, they're playing the role of Saul. No, actually, I would say Saul's smarter <laughs> because Saul's out there taking them. He brings David into his house. Well, that's true. And but it, it's let just, that one sink in, guys. Yeah. So anyway, but that's a... But no, you're, you're absolutely right. It's frustrating to see this that, you know... A good that it goes pastor. On. I didn't mean to go there. It's just one of the things that I just happened to notice in the, in the text. There's that natural... Well, leadership ability in David. It, it is valid. And I, I, you know, the thing is, I think a good pastor should be constantly trying to work himself out of a job. Absolutely. And we should always be trying to bring people in who, who are willing and able to pursue a leadership position, not out of any kind of sense of hubris or entitlement, but someone who really wants to serve the Lord. And mm-hmm. sometimes having that leadership position is the best use of their gifts in service to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, we were talking about this. I know I'm going off on a rabbit trail, and we're I like at time, but I, no, whatever. We, we, we were talking. We, we were talking about this last night, and you know, this is one of the things that you and I deal with: is uh, don't look at us, but check out our podcast, right? And trying to figure out, you know, where we fit into that because I, I, I don't want to brag on this because that's kind of counter to the what I'm going to say, but. I do think that one of the things that we we try to do is to have a very real perspective of the fact that this is about us, but it's totally not about us. Right. Yeah. It's, and yeah. It, it's, it's scary. It's, it, is, it is. Yeah. And it's like every, I mean, and, and I really appreciate like all of our supporters, but uh, you know, to me, every time we get a new Patreon supporter, I'm like, oh my gosh, Hold we, have, breath. we have responsibilities to people. And so- um, I, I definitely appreciate all the support. Um, yeah. And I'm always shocked. I, I am every time. I'm like, oh my gosh, do, are we actually doing something? So I, I'm, I'm glad people are letting us know they appreciate what we're doing. Absolutely. And, but it, again, we, we do try to keep that perspective that it's not about us and our agendas and what we want to push. It's, it's, about lear- it's about learning to love God and to love the studying the text and mm-hmm. to help other people mm-hmm. learn those things. That's what we, that's all we're, that's all we want to well, do. Well, I, I think that's what happens with most people who really love the Bible. It's like you, you build up this level of learning so much and then finally you get to a certain level and it's up in your throat. And every time you open your mouth, you're just telling people, Hey, this, I learned this and I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. And then they get like 50 years of backlog of all the stuff that you've been <laughs> setting on. And they're just, you know, trying to get away and you won't. Okay. Sure. Yeah. It's an ugly situation at a party. I've been there. I've been the person. Oh yeah. <laughs> and no, so I've, I've been that person at a party too, <laughs> where you're like, 
Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like they don't want it. They don't care about the, the Hebrew and Greek syntax. It doesn't even cross their mind. But you know, and so this allows us to kind of have a relief valve <laughs> so yeah. we don't injure those around us. <laughs> yeah, very helpful. So everyone, thank you so much for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, but what you said about David was 100% correct. He, he and I, I want to just wrap this whole part up. He is working the crowd. He is saying the same thing over and over and over again. He's getting the same response. He's both checking it out. He's building people up. Mm-hmm. He, he's doing the right thing, so much so that he's going to hack off his older brother. And we're going to get into that um, next week. All right. So. Well, let's, uh, let's take a break, and we'll get there. Uh, well, for us, and- I don't know, 10 minutes or so for you guys next week. And we hope to come back and join us. And we're having fun here doing this. And uh, if you want to be part of the conversation and be, you know, see what's going on, uh, maybe get some previews of what we're looking at, uh, be sure to hit us up on uh, Raven Creek SC on all the social media and ravencreeksc.com where you can be in contact, ask questions, be part of the conversation. And we will see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.